loving sairam and greetings from prashanti nilayam this is my third talk in the current series on awareness and i hope you are not finding it too difficult to follow the trend of the series just to refresh your memory in my first talk i explained that awareness means according to swami total understanding in practical terms awareness or total understanding means that there is only god and that, that this god is in everything is everywhere all the time and we had better be conscious of this fact while going about our routine business for the sake of completion i should mention that this series interleaves with a companion series on the gita both these series are complementary they carry the same message but are presented differently the awareness series is similar in scope to what we offer to our students basically this series tries to present spirituality against the background of modern society and today's life in the gita series on the other hand i explain how krishna conveyed the same teaching to arjuna 5000 years ago getting back to earlier talks in the series after explaining what awareness means i try to stress why a knowledge of the omnipresence of god is important and how people try to conveniently forget the omnipresence of god so that they can do as they please in this wide world for example a politician may come to swami fall repeatedly at swami's feet in the interview room be very respectful reverential and all that while in prashanti nilayam but the moment he crosses the temple gate in his luxury car he switches to a different style and mode god is no longer on his radar screen i covered all this ground in my first talk in my second talk i try to explain why such compartmentalized behavior would not do this i did by calling attention to four terms swami uses to remind us of our place in the cosmic hierarchy the four words are yashti meaning individual Samashti meaning society, Srishti meaning nature or creation, and finally Parameshti meaning God. Swami says, God created nature, so nature is a part of God. Next, in this vast cosmic expanse called universe, planet Earth is a tiny speck and living on planet Earth is humanity and humanity is made up of individuals. we are thus a part of a huge chain coming right at the bottom but that does not mean we are not important we are as crucial to god's creation as the cell is to the human body the individual is a part of society which is a part of creation which is a part of god that is how swami describes this divine chain sticking to the analogy of the human body just as every cell has a specific function to perform to keep the body healthy so also every individual has the obligation to make sure that his or her action would not harm society would respect nature and be in harmony with the individual's intrinsic divinity these are some of the concepts that i try to highlight in my second talk and in the process i went into some details concerning the connection between the individual and society this is a close and intimate connection and needs to be properly understood 
especially in the context of contrary ideas often being had these days. For example, Margaret Thatcher, I hope you recall that she was thrice the Prime Minister of Britain and a very powerful lady too. Margaret Thatcher once famously said, There is no society, only the individual. Mrs. Thatcher was well known for many of her one-liners, famous one-liners really, such as, The business of government is to get out of business, and so on. In effect, she was a great champion of the conservative point of view and did a lot to steer Britain away from the welfare state created by Clement Attlee around 1946 when he defeated Churchill, the great wartime hero, in general elections. Perhaps you are a bit perturbed that I am making a reference to politicians and politics and asking yourself, how on earth can all this be related to spirituality? A perfectly valid doubt. However, I would like to mention two things by way of convincing you that I am not off track. First, let me go back to the Ramayana, which I am sure you would agree is solidly spiritual literature. Okay, in the Ramayana, let me take you to the moment when Bharata goes to the forest searching for Rama, who has just gone on exile. Bharata meets Rama at Chitrakota, I believe, and even before Bharata could say Sai Ram, Rama is giving a long lecture on governance to Bharata. This, I hope, would convince you that good and dharmic governance is very much in the province of spirituality. By the way, that's why Gandhi never forgot spirituality while being fully immersed in politics. If one does that, one ends up with politics without principles. So very common today. My next remark is based on a direct personal experience. Many years ago when I was serving as the Vice Chancellor of Swami's University, Swami used to go to the college every Sunday morning to address the MBA students. By the way, this ought to convince you that if Swami had a course on business management in his university, it means that business is not out of the purview of spirituality. Anyway, to continue with my story, during his discourse, Swami materialized a gold Schieffer's pen, Schieffer's fountain pen. He then took the pen apart and explained how a product is priced. Later, he graciously gave me the pen, which naturally made me very happy. I was very careful about the pen and used it only for taking down notes during Swami's discourses. For my regular office work, I used a normal ball pen that I always carried. One afternoon, after the darshan and interviews were over, Swami called me inside to tell me something. He looked at me and noticed the ball pen in my pocket. He asked, Where is the pen I gave you? I replied, very respectfully, Swami, I use that pen only for spiritual work. Swami looked hard at me and after a pause said, Everything is spiritual. I hope with that digression I have convinced you that it is not exactly irrelevant to mention politics, economics, finance and business while discussing the individual and his or her relationship to society. After all, Swami himself has said that politics without principle, business without scruples are harmful to society. To highlight how individuals do need to consider society and its problems, let me refer briefly to a study carried out a few years ago in Britain 
about juvenile offenders who are sent to prisons. Normally, such offenders are supposed to be detained in separate facilities meant for minors. But more often than not, these kids were thrown in along with much older and hardened criminals. There, these juveniles were subjected to all sorts of indignities and brutalized so much that when they were released after the detention period, these young people, barely 17 and 18, had themselves become pretty much hardened. And what happened after they got released? They indulged in crime and soon were back in prison. Thereafter, their life was one of crime, prison sentence, release, more crime, detention again, and so on endlessly. The commission that inquired into prison affairs was deeply disturbed that society was, through its indifference, simply breeding more and more crime by not helping young people to be educated and trained while in prison so that they could be rehabilitated and become normal citizens when they were released. In other words, not only was crime being bred, but also society was paying a hefty bill to promote more and more law and order problems. There are any number of such problems that link individuals and society in a tightly coupled manner. Consider children. God has made children such that they like to play. This they do all over the world and they have been doing this for thousands of years. Play is indeed needed for a number of reasons. It brings children together. It makes them happy, which is good for their bodily and mental health. It gives exercise to the body and so on. Of course, everything must be in moderation, but those of you who are, say, 40 and above would, I am sure, remember with much joy and nostalgia the hours you spent playing as a kid. Now, there's an important reason why I'm mentioning about children playing. If you look at cities like Bombay or Mumbai, if you prefer, it has a population of 15 million and is horribly crowded. A good percentage of this 15 million is made up of kids. Go around Bombay and try to see if there are any open spaces where these kids can play. Hardly any. Urbanization has stolen every bit of open space for shopping malls, apartments, restaurants and what have you. What is not taken up by this is used by slums. So you have these millions of kids with absolutely no place to play. What do they do? The kids of rich people stay at home and play expensive video games. The kids of middle class people spend hours watching TV, mostly horrible programs I might add. The children of lower middle class people are driven by their parents to spend time doing homework and the slum children mill around and watch crime in action. In some sense or the other, this is what is happening not only in Bombay, but in Mexico City and maybe in Chicago, Bangkok and what have you. And in many other medium-sized cities all over the world also. Can you imagine what an impact all this can have in the future of mankind? Fortunately, in the Sai family, we have programs like Balvikas and so forth. But think of the rest of humanity. What a huge problem the world is going to face just because individuals are too preoccupied with themselves and hardly about society. I can go on and on about man and society, but shall restrain myself for the moment. 
but i must now spend some time talking about the individual and nature here again swami has said so many things so many times but we hardly ever bother to reflect on what he says let me quote a couple of examples of the wonderful things swami has said i shall start with a talk he gave to students many years ago i remember the scene very well it happened during the so called thrai session in brindavan swami said modern man refers to our ancients as superstitious and ignorant people he ridicules them for worshiping mountains rain sky animals and even snakes what stupidity he says in derision swami continued but look at what modern man is doing he is not just cutting trees but wiping out whole forests he is not just killing animals but wiping out whole species god gave man pure air to breathe but what is modern man doing polluting it hugely god gave man water to drink but what is modern man doing he is not only wasting water but also polluting it like crazy now who is better ancient man who reveres nature and respects it or modern man who thinks he owns nature and is causing harm to it without realizing he is causing harm to himself that is what swami said 2000 years ago the population of the world was very small compared to what it is now but today the population has swelled to about 6.2 or 6.5 billion and they say that by the year 2050 it would be about 10 billion imagine that have we ever sat down to figure out the implications of such a huge population growth here are some of the things we ought to be deeply concerned about take food food does not drop like manna from heaven man has to work and slog to get food land and water are the prime basis for all the food people eat both vegetarian and non veg for a moment consider meat especially beef beef is very popular these days not only in the west but in japan and many other countries all kinds of arguments are made about why beef is very good for the body and all that while swami's devotees would argue equally vehemently that meat is bad for one on the spiritual path quoting in particular what swami told one of hislop's friends during a group interview that swami gave to hislop and his friends but you know something conservationists have done some practical calculations and have come up with a very compelling earthly reason shall i say for why mankind simply cannot afford to eat meat believe it or not it has all to do with land and water we just don't think about these issues but do you know how much water is needed for growing say 1 kilo of rice wheat and sugar it has been calculated that if we go to a grocery store and buy 1 kilo of rice and 1 kilo of wheat we are literally carrying half a ton of water for that is the amount of water needed to grow 1 kilo of rice and 1 kilo of wheat beef is eaten extensively in america and is produced by first growing corn and then feeding it to cattle it turns out that at the end of it all to get 1 kilo of beef one has to use a hundred times more water than is required to produce say 1 kilo of wheat it turns out that even 
amongst crops some consume more water than others in india about 50 years ago not much rice was eaten most of the people were poor and they usually ate cereals grown in arid land cereals that did not require much water for cultivation these cereals like millet for example were looked down upon but they were very nutritious subsequently rice and wheat eating became popular among even the so called poor people because a lot more of these cereals began to be produced however this has meant using much more water but the time has come especially with growing demands for water on the one hand and galloping population on the other to wonder whether india as a whole should consider its eating taste going back to less water intensive crop this is a good juncture to consider the relationship of this series of talks with that on the geeta in both the central message is the same as i told you only the presentation or the packaging is different let's take a minute off to discuss this point the geeta begins with krishna advising arjuna not to quit not to abandon his duties as a soldier who is committed to fight for the protection of dharma now why did arjuna want to drop out according to arjuna it was because he thought the war was not worth it especially when it meant killing kitan kin near and dear krishna points out that arjuna's reasoning is all flawed the lord explains to arjuna that actions must always be based on considerations of the permanent rather than the temporary arjuna's hasty decision was based on considerations of the body which is temporary he was worried about his grandfather gurus etc getting killed in battle but man is not just the body it was a mere covering for something permanent namely the atma bodies may die but the atma never dies being eternal arjuna must decide giving priority to the atma rather than the body moreover dharma was at stake and dharma was divine power in action Arjuna was wondering what exactly was his duty and he was trying to resolve his doubt by looking at matters superficially. In the Gita Vahini Swami has explained in detail that while we must be engaged with the present we must while making decisions keep two important rules in mind. Rule 1 act in the transient world but according to eternal guidelines and the permanent as the basis of creation. Rule 2 see the universal in the particular and the particular in the universe that is krishna's teaching distilled down to two simple golden rules now how far do these two rules relate to what i am trying to tell you about awareness if you understand that then the connection between these two complementary series of talks would become quite clear Remember awareness means total understanding and total understanding means that god is in everything everywhere all the time for us the devotees of swami it means that we must see swami in everything everywhere all the time okay let's now try to relate these two to the two golden rules just enunciated with particular reference to arjuna and his dilemma rule 1 says act in the transient world but according to eternal guidelines and keeping the permanent basis in view Krishna explains he says Arjuna the eternal guideline is dharma and the permanent basis is the atma you are the atma and not the transient body yet an action by this transient body is needed right now and that action shall be for the protection of dharma because the protection of dharma is the eternal guideline 
What about rule two, which says see the universal and the particular and the particular and the universal? This is a beautiful teaching of Swami, and in effect, it says, see God even in the smallest insect and the atom, and at the same time realize that all these form a part of the cosmic nature of God. Understanding this rule would take us some time, and I hope to deal with this issue later. But meanwhile, just remember this. There is an intimate connection between the micro and the macrocosms. And this interconnection should never be forgotten in anything that we do. When man kills tiger for sport and its body parts, he fails to see God in the tiger. Equally, he fails to see that the tiger plays a delicate role of its own in the balance of nature or eco-balance as it is called these days. Thus, the unwanted slaughter of the tiger must be avoided both for micro and macro reasons. That is what total understanding is all about and that also is the lesson that Krishna taught Arjuna. Anyone can parrot like repeat the Gita, but when it comes down to practical life, few people implement its teachings. That is because few people understand what the teachings really mean. Swami has explained the teachings in pitiless detail, but then who has the time these days to read all that? That, in my opinion, is the single greatest tragedy of modern times. Here we have God walking in our midst who is telling us so many things so many times over and over again. But do we pay any attention? In the Gita, the Lord tells Arjuna that he has to incarnate again and again to teach the same lesson. As if this is not enough, Swami has said on many occasions that he talks about the same thing in all his discourses because people refuse to learn what he is teaching. The question then becomes, why does man refuse to learn and even if he has learnt, why does he forget so easily? Swami has himself raised this question and answered it as he did when he came down as Krishna. From our point of view, the question is, why do we lack a sense of awareness or why do we fail to have total understanding? This is an important point and we shall consider that next. As Swami has told us many times, each human being is really a composite of three distinct entities, the gross body, the subtle mind and the causal atma. It's interesting that from each source, we get a special gene. The gene for the gross body comes from the biological parents and this gene includes the traits of our ancestors too. Thus it is that there are many similarities between the genes of humans and monkeys. What about the mind? Does it have any genes associated with it? Of course. Does that come as a surprise to you? It probably does, but the fact is that the subtle genes that shape our minds is a subtle entity called vasanas. These vasanas are nothing but the traits of the person acquired in earlier births. So we do, each of us, have mental genes and these come from our own previous births and they are thus determined by us and not our biological parents or their ancestors. Okay, the body has its genes and so apparently the mind too, though we call it vasanas. What about the heart? That also has genes. There is no particular name for it that I know of and so I will simply call those genes divine genes. 
All right. We have three sets of genes. So what? Well, our personality is determined by a complex intermix of all these three. We come into this wide world with these three genes, and thereafter our environment starts impacting us, making its own impression. For example, a person might have been very greedy when young, a trait inherited from earlier births. This might have been the inherited vasana. However, in this birth, this person might have come into contact with a good person and the latent goodness might have got tickled, making the person less selfish. So, there could be an improvement. Equally, there could be a deterioration. What I am driving at is that in this life, we have an opportunity to improve spiritually or become worse. The traits we develop in this birth are called gunas. Krishna has told many things about gunas and guna management to Arjuna, and I shall deal with all that later. But here I might say that we had better do some smart guna management so that we reduce desires, enhance purity, etc., so that buddhi becomes sharp and helps us to stay connected with our conscience. In short, our gunas could play a big role in buddhi becoming blunted in which case we fail to develop proper awareness. The net result is that we often fail to see God in other people, in society, in nature and so on. What I am driving at is that our gunas can make us pretty dull spiritually in many, many ways. For example, I find many people telling me that they have no time etc. for reading spiritual literature. But I know that these people find enough time to read market news in great detail every single day. They might argue this is vital for their profession, but don't tell me that these people have not sat through Swami's discourses, in which he has made extensive reference to the first hymn of Bajagovindam, in which Shankara chides man for spending too much time on worldly learning when it will not come to his rescue in the last moment. If God is made a casual affair, then His grace will also will come to us only rarely. There is such a thing as eligibility, and unless we become eligible, how can God help us? Sorry, but even in the spiritual world, there is no free lunch. People think they can write checks and win God's grace. This is an unfortunate and mistaken impression. God wants our love and not our money. Why would He want our money when He is the source of wealth? This is not to say that he would disapprove of our voluntarily giving money for social uplift, charity, etc. with a genuine passion to help those that are less fortunate. That's different. But making a deal, God, you do this for me and I shall give you so much. Well, we had better think twice about that. Out of compassion, God might even help us, but let us not be under the impression that God is desperate for our money. How many times have you heard Swami say, leave behind one bad habit before you go from Prasantinilam. That is more than enough for me. Maybe I should state once more the purpose of the awareness course that we give to our students as also to make the purpose of this particular series of talks. Very simply stated, the purpose is to make everyone realize and become aware that unless we take Swami's teachings very, very seriously and do something by way of following them, humanity would be in deep trouble. And remember, when the ship of humanity sinks, 
all of us are likely to go down together on the other hand by thinking of the lord we would be saved and by doing lord's work we would also help others to save just look at the amount of violence around take a minute off to inquire why it is there mostly it is due to anger misunderstanding greed hate and so forth to sustain violence a lot of money is being spent a huge amount really and to protect themselves from violence people spend once more a lot of money few appreciate how much money is involved in all this recently a tv channel in america came to bangalore and interviewed dr safaya about swami super hospital i hope most of you know that dr safaya is the director of our swami super specialty hospitals the interviewer said dr safaya this hospital is very nice of course but it's too difficult to replicate it's too expensive dr safaya calmly replied do you know how much a sophisticated fighter plane like the f16 costs complete with all the armaments and training costs do you know how many such planes are there in the world today let me tell you for the cost of every such fighter plane we can have one hospital like this tell me which is better to have hundreds if not thousands of such planes meant to attack or hundreds of hospitals like this the interviewer would not give up and shot back oh doctor you are over simplifying things have you not heard of threats to peace etc have you not heard of terrorism dr safaya coolly replied you know i am from kashmir and i know more about terrorism than you do i have seen it first hand but let me also tell you beyond a point arms and weapons simply cannot help it is time we try the alternative of love and understanding without trying it seriously we are dismissing it is that correct think about it i would say the same let us take a minute off and think about what swami is doing and the lessons swami is teaching us these lessons teach us about the duty we as individuals owe to society and they also tell society the responsibility it has towards individuals this is a point that would come up later but for the moment let me end by drawing your attention to the following important fact we may be individuals who are doctors or pilots or businessmen or executives or whatever but all of us are without exception a part of creation and to that extent each of us has a cosmic connection with the cosmos and the creator of the cosmos as indeed everything from the tiny atom and the insect to the galaxy does life must be lived with full awareness of this cosmic connection and the cosmic responsibilities it implies that is really what awareness means it is that awareness that krishna communicated to arjuna 5000 years ago and the same awareness that swami is trying to create within us through his tireless actions and discourses let us pay heed to swami do as he says and uplift ourselves and in the process let us help humanity also think about it thanks for listening and jai shri ram